Good evening, once again. Uh, I'd like to tell you the um, Rilke poem again. Maybe I should tell you the Naomi Shihab Nye poem again, too, because I left out a line or two. And then I left out a line or two in the Rilke poem as well, so... But I kind of, yeah, I kind of follow Robert Bly's suggestion, you know, like, who who knows the poem anyway? So, <laughs> and, and if you're saying it, it's yours. If you're reading it out of the book, then you, it's no excuse for leaving it out of the line. So. <clears throat> Shall we start with Naomi Shihab Nye then, the red brocade pillow? <clears throat> the Arabs have a saying, when a stranger comes to your door, feed him for three days before you ask who he is, where he's come from, what he's doing. That way he'll have strength enough to answer, or by then you'll be such good friends that you don't care. (laughs) Uh, Rice? Uh, Oh, let's go back to that. Rice? Pilaf? Pine nuts? Oh, take the red brocade pillow. My son will get water for your horse. No, I, I wasn't busy when you called. I wasn't planning to be busy. That's the armor everyone puts on to pretend they have a purpose in this world. I refuse to be claimed. That's the line I left out. I, refu- I refuse to be claimed. Your food is waiting I'll snip fresh mint for your tea. Um, This is related to the subject I want to try to talk about tonight, which is, um, has something to do with, you know, the fundamental nature of mind or consciousness or life. What is it? Um, And we do get involved in purpose, but... Beyond purpose, is there something? You know that regardless of your background, religious background, you know something, is there something that supports us? Um, you know, or could could guide or instruct or benefit or, you know, are we all orphans here or, you know, <laughs> uh, sun, earth, stars, do we belong? No, very important. And the nature, um, anyway, I will talk more about this. Um, but often uh, we can get so involved in purpose, and then and then we we're missing. You know what could come to us when we're not busy. One example I use of this is food, which is why I'm also sharing with you the Wilkes on it. Um, because I also studied with uh, Thich Nhat Hanh some after uh, 20 years of being an institutionalized Zen student. <laughs> I was committed. <laughs> it's hard to get out after being committed for 20 years. It was the most difficult thing I did in my life. Um <clears throat> But after, um, and, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh once, in 1983, Thich Nhat Hanh was at Zen Center, and he uh, was teaching people to smile. You know, you could practice smiling. And Zen students are, at that time especially, 
you look down, you don't make any eye contact, and you don't smile. Because one of the things that happens in various religious traditions, you know, is that you become like the culture that your tradition comes from. So a good Japanese is not smiling. They're industrious. They're dispassionate. You know, they're getting things done. They're making things happen. As my friend Kaz Tanahashi said, um, uh, <clears throat> how does it go? Um, industrious people build industry. Lazy people build civilization. <laughs> Being lazy is a difficult job, but somebody has to do it. <laughs> so it makes it sound like Kaz is kind of a lazy person, but he's only translated, you know, two giant, you know, giant volumes of Zen Master Dogen, and you know, all, and you know, put out fifteen or twenty books, and uh, so. For being a lazy person, he's sure getting a lot done. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so uh, Thich Nhat Hanh was teaching us to practice smiling, and the Zen students then they say, "Suppose I don't feel like smiling." <laughs> they were, you know, yeah. It's like, oh my gosh, it's my fellow student is attacking Thich Nhat Hanh. <laughs> But, um, you know, Ty was fairly used to this. Um, and he said, um, you know, you could have a slight smile for somebody who doesn't feel like smiling. <laughs> That's an advanced version of this, you know, of smiling. But he also said, um, you know, you can mix hot and cold water um, and have it come out the same faucet. So... If you don't feel like smiling, and then you can have some smiling, and you can mix them together and see what comes out, something like this. Um, but the idea of you know having a slight smile, and there's a difference, you know, because then when I met, you know, uh, I was in one year in Amsterdam at a Thich Nhat Hanh retreat with Robert Aiken, and there were all these Vietnamese people there, and I've never seen a group of people with more and bigger smiles. So is this Buddhist practice to smile, or is it Buddhist practice to be dispassionate, or is it just some culture that's come along to us? It's hard to know sometimes. So, um, But I think for the people at Zen Center, it was pretty good for us. At least it was wonderful for me to start practicing smiling, because I wasn't very good at it. So, you know, with some practice, you can become better at smiling. And then you begin to have a smile. Um, you're changing your habit rather than trying to the basic, you know, fundamental suffering in, in this world is I'm going to make the circumstances of my life give me more pleasure and less unpleasant. I will make, so I will get better food and then I will live with better people and, you know, I'm going to arrange this all so that I get better experiences. How well has it worked? <laughs> you know? So uh, many religious teachers say, how well has it worked? Well, it hasn't. Give it a rest. <laughs> and, you know, practice smiling. Or, you know, the um, poet William Stafford, his famous expression after, you know, he was writing a poem every day. He did this for 30 years, finally, a poem every day. And a woman interviewed him at one point and said, 
Mr. Stafford, how do you do this? Write a poem every day. You can't be inspired day in and day out. How do you do this? And he said, I lower my standards. <laughs> and, and later he said, um, you know, this doesn't just apply to poetry. This applies to my life. I'm lowering my standards. So, you know, this is like I could smile at more things. You know, that normally, like, that's not worth smiling about, you know. It, it's got to be better than that before I'm going to smile. So, this, as you can tell, is related to, you know, possibly gratitude practice, but having a slight smile. And Thich Nhat Hanh's idea of this was, uh, you know, it's a slight smile. That's your cheeks, for instance. They get puffy. <laughs> So it doesn't, and he said, this is not like the television where they say, if you can fake sincerity, you've got it made. <laughs> you know, and you have a big smile and uh, you're, you have good white teeth and everything. Um, with, in other words, the kind of smile that somebody is hiding behind, or that's, you know, that's a kind of like, a, the smile is like a wall that, you know, you can't see then who this person is because there's just a big smile that hides everything. Uh, so Thich Nhat Hanh said, that, not that kind of smile, just a slight smile. And um, it was so hard for us. And I, you know, at, at, we were doing a one-day meditation. We were doing uh, walking meditation. And the Zen people are very serious about the walking. And we walk, you know, in line. Do you understand? In a line. Vipassana people don't walk in lines. You know, they go, they're going here, they're going there. <laughs> you walk where you feel like walking. And <laughs> and if you feel like it, you, you, you go walk in the walk-in room. Or, but you can walk where you want. And you, you find a place you like to walk. So, but in, And we had this... Um, it's kind of fun, you know, but years ago there was a Buddhist retreat that started here one day, or in this corner, you know. And uh, we had all these Buddhist teachers. Uh, you know, there's about a hundred people or something. And um, and then uh, and everybody was gathered around and various things happened. And um, <clears throat> I'm not going to tell you... The, in detail about that, but the point I want to make is that when we got to Gringotts the next day, the chairs, in, instead of being in a circle, like the chairs are in rows, and then the tons are in rows, so everybody's lined up. So we spent the whole morning like, do we have to sit in lines? Well, it's the Zen way. Is it could you have a do you have a problem with that just for the morning here? Yeah, I don't want to do this. And then and then so then we were arguing about whether or not to do it. What we what we just you know we spent the whole morning doing that. <laughs> How are we going to do this? But anyway, uh, Thich Nhat Han from the from one end of the room said, "Some of you are not smiling. <laughs> You're wasting your time." Very interesting, the difference between, you know, getting something accomplished. I'm going to concentrate and be mindful and, and smiling. You know, relaxing, smiling, having some ease, some joy. Um, pretty nice. 
Um, and uh, William Stafford, just to finish up on what I said, but he's, he said, this is just not just poetry, this is my life. And as I, the older and older I've gotten, the more I've had to lower my standards. And I feel I'm becoming more and more able to, you know, enter the soul and the heart of my life by, by not, um, you know, thinking about where I need to be getting to, you know, with some, some high standard, you know, some high aim. Because we hear that all the time. You need to aim high. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, excuse me, I want to give you the Rilke poem again, um, and we'll go on. <clears throat> uh, the Rilke poem, um, and my uh, the translation I'm using is uh, is partly Stephen Mitchell's and partly mine and a friend of mine. We translated it at one point, and then... I can't remember either of those, so I just make it up as I go along. But I will give you the extra line that I left out. Round apple, smooth banana, melon, gooseberry, peach. How all this affluence speaks, death and life in the mouth. You thought you were just going to get the nice stuff, right? (laughs) Tasty food. Um. How all this affluence speaks, death and life in the mouth. I sense, observe it in a child's transparent features while he tastes. This comes from far away. What secrets are you ha- are happening in your mouth while you eat? Instead of words, discoveries are flowing out of the flesh of the fruit, astonished to be free. Dare to say what apple truly is, this sweetness that feels thick, dark, dense at first, then exquisitely lifted in your taste grows clarified, awake, luminous, double-meaning, sunny, earthy, real. Oh, knowledge, pleasure, joy, immense. I told my friend Herman, some of these lines are kind of awkward, flowing out of the flesh of the fruit. He said, it's awkward in German, too. (laughs) Uh, So, first of all, you know, one of the things this uh, poem reminds me of, you know, especially right at the beginning there, how all this affluence speaks, death and life in the mouth. And somehow we have the idea that we can find some way to avoid the death, the darkness, the suffering. And in a certain sense, yes. And in another sense, no. Um, And I was remembering, um, uh, you know, years ago when Sizikrish is still alive, so that's like the 60s, uh, one night at Tassahara he said, to all of us, uh, life is impossible. Life is basically impossible. And then he bowed, good night. (laughs) 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 
And the next day, you know, we have meditation and breakfast. And finally, there was this chance and somebody said, Roshi, Roshi, yes. Uh, last night you said life is impossible. What are we going to do? <laughs> and he said, you do it every day. You live this impossible life every day. But what makes it all the more impossible is, where are you aiming for? Where were you going to get to? You know, where, you know, the food, when you, when you eat food, you know, every, every moment of life, everything is there. There's a saying in Zen, every day is a good day. If every day is a good day, then compared to what? Because <laughs> our usual idea is, it's a good day compared to the bad days. And, you know, there's not so much difference. If you say everything is, for, for some years, I used to say everything is S-H-I-T. It's not very different, you know, compared to what? So, where, where are you starting from, or where, what's the basis for this? And essentially, you know, we, we, we come up with our own standards from our childhood and from our long life, and we have, we have our way to assess things and measure things and evaluate and what's better and what's worse, and are we, are we progressing, are we not? Was it a good day, was it a bad day? So we keep, and we keep thinking we will be able to get better and better days. But actually, of course, when you, as soon as you put something in your mouth, you can you you taste life and you taste death and you there's the sun, the earth, the water, the air, the insects, everything is there. Um, but usually, this is another thing we do is that we're we're going to focus on one thing or another. So we have our focus, uh, and then we ignore everything else. I found out about this, you know, I went to a workshop with a friend of mine, she she does uh, somatic experiencing. You know, it's very useful for helping you with, you know, trauma in your life, getting over trauma. It helped her so much that she then became a, you know, worked, started doing, you know, study for three years or five years and now teaches or does th therapy for people, somatic experiencing. But she was doing a workshop on finding ease in stressful times. And after we'd introduced ourselves, she said, well, look around and see if you can find something pleasant and then notice how pleasant affects your physiology. I looked around and there was a painting with a kind of rope bridge and a kind of bottomless cavern, a chasm there. Maybe it's encouraging to know that you can cross the bottomless chasm on this rope bridge that's so frail. Um, but I wasn't finding that especially pleasant. <laughs> and on the right-hand wall, there was actually some... It looked like burlap that had been framed, as though the burlap in a frame was a painting of burlap. <laughs> I didn't find that pleasant. In the far corner, there was a kind of what looked to me like a kind of bedraggled stuffed dog. 
I just, I couldn't do it. I wasn't finding anything pleasant. And then the teacher says, and what did you find that was pleasant? And then somebody says, well, the, you know, the, the woman's socks over there, they're kind of pleasant. And, and how did you feel? And, well, you know, I started to feel warm and happy and, you know, at ease. Um, and so, and then some people actually found the dog that I found, you know, kind of dilapidated and falling apart and ragged. Um, and I didn't, they sent, some people found that pleasant and they were like, how wonderful. Anyway, I said I couldn't find anything pleasant. And she said, what about the trees outside? And I said, well, it's not very pleasant for me to have to turn my back like this <laughs> in order to see the trees. They are pleasant out there, but, you know. She said, well, if you want, you can rearrange your chair. Okay. But I realized, like, I'm just not, that's not what happens when I open my eyes. I do not see pleasant. And my partner, Margot, and then a lot of other people say, that's what I do when I open my eyes. I look for pleasant things. I don't. And not so long ago, you know, this winter there was all this rain, and there's the sun, and out our one of our kitchen windows, there's a tree that has uh, red berries. I think it's a kind of pyrocantha and leaves. And she says, look at that. <laughs> and I look and I, so there's a tree. <laughs> and she says, look some more. <laughs> it's extremely beautiful. <laughs> it's very pleasant. And then I notice there's all these drops on all the leaves, and the drops are shining. But I'm just not very good at that. And I had, a little, I had to be coached to see something pleasant there. And then I'm still, going, and then I'm still in the stage of like, so? So it's it's interesting though. Is there is there anything pleasant now? Is there something pleasant just sitting here? There's a there's what? Oh, there's a dog behind me. No, (laughs) the dogwood blossoms. You see, I can't see them. (laughs) The dogwood blossoms. There you go. so um, part of this, you know, is the notion of that you could experience joy or uh, pleasure, ease. And pleasure is actually in Buddhism, you know, a positive characteristic. Pleasure is, um, you know, we hear a lot about all the suffering in life called dukkha. But, and, but what Buddha said, pleasure is pleasure. That's sukha. That's the sweetness in life, is sukha. And... Um, and, and a lot of times we've sort of studied how to not have sukha. Because if you start getting, you know, too much sukha, then you're going to be distracted from, you know, one of the references in Zen is, um, you know, the horse that has the blinders on and then is going after the carrot. So take off the blinders, unpack the saddlebags, and let's say you've arrived. <laughs> No, rather than I have somewhere to get to, so I couldn't, I can't, I don't want to get uh, distracted by pleasant. And besides, pleasant could lead to lust and greed. So just to be on the safe side, let's not have any of it.
It's the it's the famous joke was, um, why don't Baptists make love standing up? It might lead to dancing. But I notice with, um, because I've uh, studied it so much more, taste, my taste has changed over the years. And I notice now when I taste something carefully, and I say it now to people, taste what you put in your mouth, and then you start experiencing what Rilke is talking about. Instead of words, discoveries are flowing out of the flesh of the fruit. It's and what is dare to say what apple truly is? This sweetness that feels thick, dark, dense at first. You bite into an apple, and and then after a while, if you're chewing and you're giving your attention to it, it gets very expansive, sunny, earthy, double-meaninged, luminous. You know all these things that Rilke says: knowledge, pleasure, joy, immense. And there's something when we carefully give our attention in a moment, whether it's taste or seeing or smelling, our bodily sensation. You know, there, in, in when we're concentrated and connecting with our awareness with the object of awareness, resonating, which in Buddhism is joy, then there's also a stillness. You can taste, or we can, and we can experience. We ex- the stillness is not because nothing is happening. It's the stillness in which everything is arising. So we're not trying exactly, you know, to make everything stop and be still, but to experience what is, you know, the fabric, you know, out of which things arise. That's still. That's calm. That's complete. That's perfect. But the, all the everyday experiences are going to be coming and going. You know, the experiences that are, we say in Buddhism, conditioned. Buddhism distinguishes between the conditioned and the unconditioned. And the unconditioned is still, complete, perfect, however you say this. Uh, the conditioned things are appearing and disappearing based in, on conditions. The conditions that give, or, or give life to them arising and then the conditions are no longer there and they're disappearing. So each of us is both an object and, a, and also the subject. We're, we have a body which is conditioned, and we have consciousness itself which is not conditioned. So we're, you know, we're someone who can be, Suzuki Roshi said I'm someone, that he was someone we could see and hear and understand, and then someone we would never know exactly, you know. Somebody who's, you know, in the inner person. <clears throat> so, um, by the way, this poem um, of Rilke's and thinking about this reminded me of that story. The There was some kind of meeting of religious teachers from different traditions. And uh, there were some Tibetan teachers there and there was a Japanese Zen master. And the Japanese Zen master held up an orange and in the Japanese in Zen tradition, you say, "What is it? You know, is it is it just an orange, or 
what is the fabric out of or, out of which oranges arise? What is the consciousness behind? What is giving rise to you know that you see an orange? What's what all is involved in that? And um, the Tibetan teacher said, "It's an orange." <laughs> and then he turned to his attendant. And he said, "Don't they have oranges in Japan?" <laughs> But um, but it's a kind of, you know, Rilke, with his poem about an apple, was practicing, you know, without saying so, he was practicing Zen, where you ask, what is it? And, you know, ob- you know as an object, yes, we know it's an apple. And, and then, you know, there's some people like, as I recall, Ronald Reagan as president said, you know, you've seen one redwood, you've seen them all. You know, why do we need to save them for? <laughs> you know, something like this. It's just a redwood tree. Screw it. You know, um, and so we have this kind of materialistic view, and then that doesn't value things, whether it's a redwood tree or an orange or an apple or any one of us. So to have value, we're actually drawing on something bigger than you know something other than matter. Value doesn't come from money, except in our culture. You know? um, Buddhism grew up in a culture you know, that wasn't affluent. Buddhism started, you know, and that people went, monks went begging for their food. And I still remember um, reading John Blowfield's book. He spent a lot of his adult life in Asia and traveling around and studying Buddhism and various things. And he wrote a wonderful book uh, called The Wheel of Life, which is about the Buddhist wheel of life and various things, and also his travels. Uh, and he was describing at one point in there being uh, that he that he entered a Zen monastery in China. I think, as I recall, it was the early 30s. And he bemoans how I was only able to do it for seven months. You know, it might have really helped me if I could have done it longer. And he describes the diet. And he said they had three bowls at each meal. The first bowl was rice, which had weevils, in it. I guess you got a little protein that way. Is there you know, they're cooked along with the rice. And the second bowl was water that pumpkin had been cooked in. And the third bowl was the pumpkin. Each meal each day. <laughs> and he said, once in a while a layman was especially generous and bought food of a, a, a feast for the monks, and they had Vegetables fried in in italics oil, <laughs> and you could just feel like the tears of joy with O I L in italics. How amazing that was! But we have, you know, now affluence, and and then what is worth anything? What's worth something? And uh, we just, I just heard that, for instance. Um, Sales of breakfast cereals have plummeted. You know, they're down 15, 20%. And breakfast cereal doesn't, I mean, like, maybe that's not such a healthy food, but it's food. But anyway, the sales have gone down, and they they studied this, and they found out that people no longer want to have to wash the bowl. This is, and this you can only you can only do this if you can afford not to ha- have to wash the bowl. 
you know, if you can afford to go to McDonald's and have disposable uh, containers, plates, and things, you can afford that, or you can afford to just, or you can just have pop tarts that you put in the microwave, and then you can just throw the wrapper away. Um, but this is uh, so. What's what's valuable? What's important? Where does that come from? And that's you know that's in our hearts, and in our consciousness, and the degree to which we can give our attention to things, and begin to notice how things connect with our heart. Um, <clears throat> and you know, in Zen we have the expression, "Let things come home to your heart." Let you know, because it's not just stuff. It's and you aren't just stuff, you know, in your feelings and thoughts and sensations, and let them let your heart meet them. And especially if you're having difficulty, you know, breathe the difficulty into your heart. And then, because what is the most painful thing is that you try to keep it out of your heart because it's going to be too overwhelming. But actually your heart can handle it. And how you can't handle it is when it's separated from you. And you, and there's this effort to keep it away. So this is what we're studying with meditation, of course, is how to meet each moment, regardless of pleasant or unpleasant, life, death, you know, what it, whatever the moment is. So uh, Suzuki Roshi in my Zen tradition used to say, we practice meditation to be ready for anything. Because we think sometimes, oh, I practice meditation to have a better life, to have more peace of mind, to have more well-being and, you know, calmness, mindfulness. And it's all going to get better. But actually we're practicing to meet the moment more fully. And when you meet a moment, whether it's seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, when you meet the moment more fully, there's not only the objective characteristics, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, pungent, but also... Luminous, sunny, earthy, real, knowledge, pleasure, joy, immense. There's, there's stillness, and the stillness is, is not, it's not the matter, it's not the stuff, it's our, it's our awareness, we're meeting something, um, in a sense, bigger, what we call in Zen, large, big mind. You know? And we say big mind is always on your side. And big mind isn't different than small mind or monkey mind, but when you practice meditation, monkey mind or small mind resumes its, you know, you resume your big mind. You're more, you're more having your stability and well-being and being able to receive the moment without trying to wrestle, no, I didn't want that, I wanted this, and oh no, I'm not that good at it after all. And Even after all these years of meditating, I can't believe it, and I'm still having these problems. And so, um, and of course, none of that helps. <laughs> you just say to yourself, good to know, and go back to receiving the moment. <laughs> What's next? <laughs> <clears throat> so, um, I wanted to share with you um, one other, um, oh, well, a couple things, but, um, you know, from the Zen tradition, his, you know, um, Zen loves to have has all these old stories and things. So, um, but it turns out that this um, uh, just lately I've been reading how um, well two things. One is that on one hand, um, some Zen masters used to say, 
who are you? You know, they didn't say, who are you? But they said, who is hearing? Who is smelling? Who is tasting? Who is thinking? And of course, when you look for that who, you can't find it. And this is why, you know, there's books now, Thoughts Without a Thinker, and, you know, it's something that, um, you know, many people have pointed out, that 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 you cannot be found. Who is it? But you're also then beginning to notice that there's no who that you have to worry about then. Oh, I'm so sad. There's sadness, but it, you're not belaboring it by adding in the I who's doing that, that I have to now be worried about I, and how do I stop being so sad? How do, what do I do about this? We're seeing if we can you know, notice that I am not something that can be found. But on the other side of this, where the Zen tradition also says, you know, what is this orange? What is this apple? What is this, you know, thought? What is this? What's behind it, as it were? You know, what's... And uh, this comes up in the Roka poem, you know, because he says, I sense, observe it in a child's transparent features while he tastes. This comes from far away. Far away is, you know, another way we say that sometimes is beyond. Things are actually coming to us from beyond. And we, but we're starting out, you know, because we grew up in this culture, we're living in a material world. And we think that, you know, our life is dependent on, on how we organize this stuff. And that we could, if we're going to cook better, that means, you know, by some objective measurements... We're going to cook better. And by my standards, you know, I'm going to be a better person. And, you know, I've had this idea for all these years, if anybody's unhappy, it's my fault. How are you going to be happy? If Because you can't make everybody happy. I'm sorry. I thought I could. I thought my spiritual practice would finally make everybody happy. Always. <laughs> and it didn't. <laughs> so then you suffer. I would suffer. But um, <clears throat> uh, but this sense of things um, coming from beyond uh, and that you know our life is not just is not is not just um, organizing all these phenomena in a better way. Because organizing all the phenomena better just means they're all conditioned, they're all going to arise and disappear anyway. So your work is never going to end about this straightening everything out. It's never over. You just have to keep straightening. So that all of that straightening, though, is happening in some bigger space, so to speak. If you're listening, you know, like to the poem with Rilke, this comes from far away. And our sadness comes from far away. And our anger comes from far away. And everything is, things are coming from far away. In this kind of sense of studying what is beyond. You know, what is the background for the phenomenal world and the world of, and it's not just the phenomenal world because it's the, what we call the, also the objective world. Most of the time we're thinking of ourself as an object. 
but you yourself are not and have never been an object. But as soon as you say, I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm scared, I'm worried, now you're an object. But who is saying that? <laughs> you know? Who is saying that? And that who is can't be found. And that who is not a someone. It's consciousness itself. And it's something bigger than this little object that's having problems. But you can also, you also hear this in Rilke where he says, you know, oh, knowledge, pleasure, joy, immense. And the apple, um, luminous, you know, uh, ta in your taste goes clarified, awake, luminous, in your taste, in your moment, in a moment of experiencing, things grow clarified, awake, luminous. Things, and things include experiencing your own subjective experience is not just what you initially see it as an object. So um, this is, um, so one uh, Zen story about this is, uh, there was a Zen master uh, once who used to say, all the universe is one bright pearl. And uh, one day a monk came to the, him and said, uh, you say all the universe is one bright pearl. Uh, how do I understand this? How am I to understand this? And the teacher said, what need do you have to understand? And the monk said, thank you. <laughs> the next day, the teacher said to the monk, all of the universe is one bright pearl, how am I to understand this? And the monk said, what need do you have to understand? <laughs> Back to the teacher. <laughs> And the teacher said, I thought so, you're living in the Black Mountain Cave of Demons. Now, if you think about this, you see, this is a story where Dogen, Zen Master Dogen, when he was writing his commentary about this, he said, all the universe is one bright pearl. The Black Mountain Cave of Demons is one bright pearl. Understanding is the bright pearl. Not understanding is the bright pearl. And... And he said, um, you know, sadness, happiness, joy, sorrow, it's nothing but the right, bright pearl in masquerade. It looks like something else. You know, our life looks like all oh, these different phenomena. But, we're, but um, if you're interested, you know, you study what's behind it. So, in, you know, in the West, and a lot of people say, finally, you know, if you talk about God, for instance, you can say the whole the fabric of the universe is love. This is a hard one, isn't it? Because then you have this question, if it's all love, then why do all these terrible things happen? Because love is not that powerful to just... <laughs> and love allows things to happen. If you love somebody, does that mean you get to tell them what to think and what to feel and don't be like that and be like this? They don't like that. Love lets people be who they are and tries to study how to interact with that and then meet that and work with who each person is. But our idea of love is it should be more powerful than that. And I should, if I really love somebody, I should be able to fix them. <laughs> But our idea is to fix them on my terms, not on their terms. <laughs> so, 
So this is very, this is again another challenging thing to study, you know, the nature of, what's the nature of things? What's the nature of life? Is it all, is it love? And uh, of course Albert Einstein said, um, the big question is what kind of a universe do we live in? And he said, we live in a friendly universe. And if you think about it, you know, um, if you were going deeper and deeper and deeper into your life, do you have to worry about what you're going to find down there? Or can you trust that as you go deeper and deeper and deeper, you start to find more well-being and more love and more space and more boundlessness, more beyond, more bright pearl? What do you find there? So, um, So we have this chance, you know, in meditation and in other moments too, whenever you give your attention to the moment and you can say, you know, what is it? But it's not just an orange. <laughs> it's your experiencing of an orange. I was also reminded tonight thinking of, you know, how we talk about things and for instance, uh, we sometimes say about chocolate, it's decadent, it's sinful. Certain things are decadent and sinful. Is it the things? This is the same thing that men have been known to say about women. <laughs> she wanted it. <laughs> you know, she deserved it. You know, I, I, of course I, you know, attacked her or raped her, you know, because, you know, she was asking for it. But and then we we've oh, you know culturally over many centuries we've made you know the feminine the feminine is uh, you know too alluring and too this and too that you know who does that and who's not owning their own experience you know I'm saying things as an object I'm not looking at myself and how I see things that way and I'm still involved in trying to treat the world as though it was all objects. And I want to control, I want to have certain objects and I don't want to have other objects. And and then I'm going to talk about the object as being the problem and not my understanding, my way of experiencing life, that I don't have to, I don't have to be captivated by things. I don't have to be captivated by chocolate as though the chocolate was the problem. I don't have to be captivated by women as though women were the problem. And that I don't have that. You have everything. You know, we have it when we're, when we come, you know, inside and we're with, and we're with our experiencing closely and carefully. And we're not lacking anything. I spend a lot of time, you know, um, because, you know, like any man, I'm attracted. And then I'm falling in love, and, and then, well, why would I think that's over there and not here? Nice cup of tea. Oh, you know, and couldn't this be a sensual experience? Do I have to, th do I start to think like, the sensual experience is only if I can make such and such happen in such and such a way, and according to some idea I have, and then I could have sensuality. It's here. It's in my breath. It must be here already. So why are we deciding that it's only some places and not others? And then we have, 
you know, we have difficulty trying to get what we want. When when we can sit and uh, and shift, let our let our being shift and let things come to us, come into our heart. And the world is not just this world of things anymore. It's it's the world of our imagination. So over, you know, uh, some time, certainly, it, it's not a, a immediate kind of process, although you can experience, you know, for several moments at a time often, you know, something, some shift while you're meditating or some way of being. And then it's hard to maintain that as, you know, you go out into the world of things. Okay, um, I think I've talked enough. And um, somebody asked me earlier, would I have a question and answer period? And, I de- and I'm deciding, I said, well, play it by ear, follow my nose. And I've decided to have a question and answer period. So thank you. That was the talk. Um, and we have some microphones available if you have questions, comments, observations. I don't know, somebody took the microphones that were up here. Ah, there they are. So... Anybody uh, would like to bring something up? I've heard that he, um, you know, started speaking again and said something about how wonderful it was to breathe or smile, or and I also heard that he went back to France. Yeah. Uh, so, but I don't keep up, you know, real closely. <clears throat> Something else? Are you still cooking? Yes, I just did some cooking classes this weekend. And I'm the cook at my house. <laughs> Margo's a professional cook, or used to be, but she says, I was always a cook, you're an artist. I want to eat the artist's food, not the cook's food. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know how to make that many different things, but she says it's different every time anyway. What do you make? I have a limited repertoire. Well, after all these years, you know, I stopped eating wheat, which is kind of an irony since I wrote this famous bread book. <laughs> the Tassahar bread book, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and after, you know, after 30 or 40 years of being, you know, more or less a, a vegetarian, I started eating meat, too. So, um, because... Um, I just found that all the carbohydrates, you know, you eat carbohydrates and then your blood sugar, and then, so I was going around like, at the, with this low blood sugar all the time. And it all goes back to being, you know, when you're a Zen student you, and you have these in your, um, and you're not only on the, on the high carbohydrate vegetarian diet, but you're only six to six and a half hours sleep. And so you're tired, and then you just, I just spend the day, like, where is the next cup of coffee? Where is the next sugar? And after a while, you know, um, uh, you know, my, my blood sugar is verging on, you know, problematic. It's right on the edge. So, but not, you know, that I'm concerned about measurements, but I just found that I was tired a lot, and my energy wasn't so good, and when I started eating some meat, then I started having base, stable, good energy. 
and I and now I don't and I don't I'm not snacking all the time. I'm not I'm not looking for crackers and you know chips. And if anything, I snack on you know roasted sesame or sunflower, uh, roasted pumpkin seed, uh, pumpkin seeds, sunflower seeds. You know sometimes peanuts, and you know slices of apple. So I'm not looking for that next. Somehow, when I was a vegetarian, I kept looking for the next fix. So. <clears throat> So I often have, like, for breakfast in the morning now, chicken soup. And then you, then you can use the leftovers. You put the leftovers in chicken soup, and then with it I have roasted sunflower sesame, uh, sunflower and pumpkin seeds with a little bit of salt and a little bit of sugar. Um, not so much sugar that it's candy, but so that the, there's a little hint of sweetness. Um, and um, this weekend we did... Um, you know, a strawberry rhubarb tart. And I explained to people, you know, that when you we took the stems off the strawberry with the with the vegetable peeler, with the end of the vegetable peeler, you can stick it in and grab the stem and pull it out. Or with a little tiny spoon, you know, or sometimes the end of a utensil, you can get the stem out without cutting off the all the whole top of the red. And then we were seasoning them. And first you taste the strawberries. They taste pretty good. Then we added maple syrup. Not so that they taste like maple syrup, but so they taste more like strawberries. So you have to taste very carefully. You do this tasting, what's in your mouth? Just enough maple syrup so they taste more like strawberries. And then a tiny bit of balsamic vinegar. Because just the sweetness by itself is, that's not strawberry. It brought out the sweetness of the strawberry because you want to bring out the sweetness of people eat this strawberry and they don't go like, oh, this has got so much sugar on it. They say, oh, these strawberries are really good. (laughs) They're so sweet. And you don't tell them, well, yeah, they're sweet. We put on maple syrup. (laughs) You know, so then a little balsamic vinegar. Now you have sweet, and the, the balsamic vinegar is the tart flavor, so that's the, the flavor that goes... It's the high note, and it vibrates, high frequency. And it actually, it's like the singing, and it's what they call, you know, zest. If you use, like, lemon peel, it's zest. It's the zest. It's the, and when you taste things carefully, then now the strawberries are going, oh, they're so sweet, and they're singing, too. Whoa! And then... Um, I have a pepper grinder that's very fine, and you know about three on a bowl of strawberries, three or four twists of black pepper, fine black pepper, and then the strawberries go like, "We are strawberries, and we want to let you know." Because the even that little delicate amount, because you don't want it to taste like black pepper, but a tiny bit, and uh, with that pungent flavor, the. Uh, Black pepper, red pepper, chilies, garlic, ginger. The flavors expand in your mouth. So now the flavor of the strawberry goes, and the and actually strawberry has a little bit of pungent flavor, and that makes it really strawberry rather than just the sweet and the tartness. So when I do classes, we study these things. We went overtime. You know, it took us a half hour, forty five minutes overtime to you know because we we're tasting so carefully. But people got the idea. 
these taste, these are not seasoned strawberries, these taste more like strawberries. So, so my encouragement, you know, is to, that when you are doing things, you, you taste things and you experience things as you go along and you learn from your experience rather than like, how do I do this? Let me get out my book. <laughs> so um, people at the end of the class were saying like, I don't know, what, what did I learn? Well, you learned that you could experience things carefully and know for yourself what to do. That to me is meditation. Experience things closely and carefully enough that you know what to do. You know what's to your advantage, you know what's to your disadvantage, you know what works, what doesn't work, and then you remind yourself. And then you tend to get into less trouble and have you know more harmonious relationships with the things and the people. And but I don't try to tell strawberries, you know, to be radishes. You know the way we sometimes tell each other, "Grow up." <laughs> you need to be more of an adult. You know, grow up. No. You know, um, be playful. You know, be exuberant, be spontaneous, be happy, um, you know, be, be yourself. And then, then if you try to grow up too much, then, you know, you, you're not smiling. So I don't, and then, you know, so I want to know for myself what to do and not try to follow somebody's well-meaning good advice. <laughs> what else tonight? Anything? Something? Don't, don't, doesn't anybody want to say, you're kind of full of it. <laughs> you and your, you and your damn strawberries. <laughs> oh, it's I. I hardly ever do them because I, I've gotten. I used to, I used to be able to entertain people. And, and now um, so much of the time, people just talk all the time. And I try to say, you know, I'm here to give you a class. If you'd like a class, you need to not talk. Because <laughs> if you're talking to each other, I can't be talking to you. And sometimes it's pretty much impossible. <laughs> so after a class recently up in Seattle, a um, couple months ago, um, I, I asked the woman who organized the class, did you get feedback on the classes? And she said, well, you mostly got one, you know, good feedback, but that one class, you know, a number of people said you were very unprofessional. <laughs> Which means that I was not very professional about the fact that they were talking so much. <laughs> and no matter how much I explained to them, they kept talking. You know, I'm here to do a class. So, I, you know, the next time, I keep trying to think of what to do. The next time I'm going to say, I'm here to do a class, you're talking so much, and I've explained this a number of times, that if you, if you would like a class, if that's what you're here for, you're going to need to stop talking. Would you like to have a class? Or would you like to just, like, let's all go home, and you get your money back? So I think next time I'm going to give them a choice. And that will be more professional, because in this case I said, you know, you're all talking so much, I, need to, I can't do this. And I picked up my thermos of tea, my teacup, and went out of the kitchen, and I'll be about 10 minutes, I'll be back, see you. <laughs> so that wasn't very professional. But after that, they were more polite. 
they were a little better behaved. But I don't know what to do. And and they're busy talking. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I keep working on this. I keep studying. One of the best experiences I had, though, I did do that where I said, it was a class with 35 people. I don't usually do classes that big. And I said, you know, for it to be a class, you have to be quiet. Well, right away, they start all started talking. And so I just went and sat down in the corner. And somebody came, do you want their attention? I said, don't worry, you know. They're going to notice that I'm not trying to talk. <laughs> so after the room, after a while, the whole room got silent, and they all looked over at me. I said, "Yeah, if you would like to hear what I have to say, you need to be quiet like this." And do you have any ideas about how to do this? Because this is a big group, and you seem to like talking a lot. And so the first person said, "So this is a good strategy, by the way." You know, you ask people to help. I have a problem. I'm wondering if you could help me solve my problem. I have a problem that I'm not able to give the class now. So what do you suggest we do? And the first person said, um, well, we could all say that we're going to be quiet. (laughs) And then the second person said, you know, in my business, um, we, we have a lot of meetings, and what we do, if we want the attention of the room, you raise your hand. If you want silence, you raise your hand. If you see somebody's hand up, you raise your hand up. You raise your hand. When your hand goes up, your mouth closes. We call this the lip lever. <laughs> and, and then it worked. Um, and then the third person said, you need to teach over in this other place in the room. I said, yeah, I was thinking that too. So then we said, okay, if we want, if I want silence, I'm going to raise my hand. And pretty soon I raised my hand and then other people raised their hands and the whole room was going, shh, and then, and then I could talk. So the group was the group deciding what to do rather than my time to, you know, uh, from the top down. So I think that works better. It's more, it's a, it's a, it's a classic strategy for, anyway, I could tell you a lot about it, but it's time to stop. Um, I like to end the evening with a, a chant that I do, which is just the syllable Ho. Um, and Ho is the Japanese word for Dharma, Buddha Dharma. And uh, as we chant Ho, we can, uh, you let the sound into your heart, let your heart out into the sound. So we're sharing our hearts with one another. We're also dedicating the merit of the evening for the benefit of all beings. And also, if you have prayers or blessings to send out to loved ones, then bring them to mind and let the sound of the ho and the prayers, your prayers and blessings extend to them. As though we did not live in a material world. (laughs) And we were all in the same place. So I'll hit the bell to begin.
Thank you. Blessings. Have a good evening. Safe travels. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.